Hello, this is Jeff Otis, Senior Wealth Consultant and Partner at Evergreen GovCal, and you're listening to Deep Dive with Evergreen on the Evergreen Exchange. I hope you enjoy this 30-minute conversation between myself and Evergreen CEO, Tyler Hay. And as always, thanks for listening. Hey, listener, this episode requires an extra disclosure. Jeff Otis is an employee and partner of Evergreen GovCal. All views and opinions expressed by Jeff and any guest of the podcast are solely the individual's views and do not necessarily reflect the views of Evergreen GovCal. Evergreen GovCal's clients may hold securities mentioned in this podcast at any given time. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions or be considered investment advice. Enjoy the episode. All right, so we got Evergreen CEO Tyler Hay back with us today. And Tyler, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Jeff. Glad nice to have to you here. back. Good to have you. <laughs> good, good to have you back from uh, what a few months over in Hawaii. What was it like over there? It was um, the wake ups were early. I probably was getting up at four thirty or five every day, and even that was leaving me a little behind on email since it was you know between six thirty and seven thirty here, depending on the the time of the year. Yeah, what was the what was the COVID experience like in Hawaii with with you and your family? You know, it was pretty safe. I mean, they do so much. You know, they do testing before you get there, and it was similar to here. I mean, everybody wore masks, and I mean, actually, they were a little bit more more concerned about local spread than tourists bringing in because there was you know some hurdles for tourists to get in. So they were actually yeah, more worried about inner island spread than they were people coming in. Well, it's it's fascinating, you know, with you, uh, and this is one of the questions we're going to get into today is is COVID and workplace changes and how, you know, how employees can work remotely and still function as, as such. So we'll get to that in a little bit. But today, my main goal is is to do more of like a, you know, frequently asked questions that we're getting now from clients. I know last time I had you on, we did a much deeper dive into the history of our firm. You know, what was the background Evergreen, where we're at, where we're headed. I thought that was really good. I think we went for almost an, an hour. Uh, today will be much uh, briefer than that. Um, but in terms of frequently asked questions, let me get you out of the gate uh, talking about cryptocurrency. So more and more attention and interest in crypto, uh, clients are wondering, you know, is it is it real? Is it not? Is it something to play? How to play it? Uh, do you want to do you want to speak on that from your perspective? Like, how, how do you view the space? Where do you think our involvement in that space will be or is headed? And just, you know, your thoughts on cryptocurrency in general? Well, I think that, you know, a few years ago, crypto was, you know, was considered highly speculative and probably a fleeting investment fad. You know, guys like Jamie Dimon dismissed it. And you think about, you know, today it, it seems a lot more legitimate. And there's reasons that it that I think that, you know, you could make the case that it's more legitimate. Certainly what you've seen um, in terms of the fiscal response to COVID and the the massive money printing that's been going on, it's certainly started to get, you know, you could probably make the case that it's fueling the acceptance of cryptos. I think that, you know, cryptos by nature are a little tricky because, you know, while you could make the case that an alternate currency is needed, there's some serious questions. I mean, you, it's hard to imagine that you're going to have, you know, a dozen cryptocurrencies, for example, that come into existence and are accepted as currency, you know, and, and in replace of, you know, say the dollar or whatever other currency, the euro that you want to, that you want to name. So I think it's really interesting. You know, I mean, I think that 
currencies, you know, they kind of have five characteristics. One is they have to be legitimized. Two, they have to be hard to counterfeit. Currency needs to be durable and portable and divisible. Those are kind of the common characteristics of a currency. But I'd, I'd add one other thing to that, and I'd say, it, does it have to be stable? You know, I mean, recently, and this is interesting in terms of legitimacy, Elon Musk said that they're going to start accepting um, Bitcoin as payment for a Tesla. Um, and depending on where Bitcoin is today, let's just imagine you're driving to the dealership and you're going to trade in two crypto or two Bitcoins for a new Tesla. And on your way there, something goes wrong and, and Bitcoin's down 20% that day. Now you're, now you're $20,000 short of your car. Um, so I think that, um, I think there's a couple things to think about when it comes to cryptos. One is, do you really believe that there can be, you know, these alternate currencies invented, you know, out of thin air and yeah, they're finite. I mean, a big, a big, a big um, selling point is unlike government currency where, um, you know, there's fear that they can just create more and more and more cryptocurrencies generally or allegedly have a finite amount of them and they get harder and harder to find. And that's certainly been one of the appeals of them. But, you know, who, who says that it has to be finite? They tell you today it's finite. Um, but could that change? Um, do, do each cryptos have the same, you know, regulatory controls in place? One crypto says it's finite, then it changes its mind. So I think that, you know, what's appealing about um, cryptocurrencies is that, you know, they want to exist outside of a government. And they want and people like that. They like having a, a currency that isn't tied to a specific, you know, central bank or government backed entity. But you know, that seems a little contradictory to what the government might want. They want to tax you on it, and they certainly don't want to lose control of their own currency. And so I think that the space is um, is worth paying serious attention to. Um, I think that investors should be very curious about which ones are going to survive. I mean, it's sort of funny in some ways, inflation, which we're going to talk about later, cryptocurrencies were kind of the ultimate, you know, protection against inflation because, you know, gold is always being discovered, but just consider it a finite resource. Same with the cryptocurrencies. Anything that's scarce is a good, is a good hedge in inflation because you can't just create more and more of it. But I, I wonder the flip side is, can you imagine a world in which we invent Bitcoin, Ethereum, you know, dodge a coin, just keep going down the list. And at what point or, you know, does the impact of if these currencies start to become accepted and transacted in, have you literally just created money out of thin air and put it in the wallets of people? I mean, what would that do to the prices of goods, right? I mean, in reality, there there's reason to think that the very thing that they're meant to protect against, which is inflation, they could go on to cause. So I think it's super interesting um, and I think that you can no longer write it off as just, you know, an investment fad that's that'll be gone in five years. OK, I think that's good. Plus, I mean, the implications of if institutional money starts heading that way, right, in, in bigger and bigger chunks, whether it's, you know, 1% position, 2% position, 5% position. I mean, some of these like, you know, sleeve allocations that they start building out to different areas. I mean, that would be a That'd obviously be a huge, huge boost to the value of many of them. So I don't know, something to fo something to follow. 
Um, next question, we're going to uh, cannabis, the cannabis space. Seems like that over the course of the last, what, two, three years? I mean, it's, it's kind of like ups and downs, uh, you know, a lot of interest in it, a lot of curiosity on what's going to happen from the legalization of that moving forward. Um, but let's just chat about the cannabis space right now, what your thoughts are on it. Uh, is there a way to play it? Like it, hate it, love it? You know, what, where, where are you at on cannabis? Well, I think that it's it's not quite reached a point of, of being a stigma-free investment. I think that people, there are still people out there that um, consider it a drug. And I think that, you know, everybody's entitled to their own opinion. The reality is there's other people that don't and not only don't view it as a drug, but are looking at it as an investment. And so... You're right that, you know, over the last few years, there's been, especially with, you know, California passing their legalization of it, it seems like there's no putting the genie back in the bottle, if you will, in terms of the path towards legalization. It has been a choppy ride and the market itself, you know, it's crazy. You know, if you look at total alcohol sales globally, it's it's a $1.1 trillion a year revenue business. And depending on where you look, um, in terms of estimates, you come up with about 60 to $100 billion in global sales for cannabis, which means you either believe that you can kind of believe one of two things. You can either believe that, that alcohol consumption is something to the, you know, using those numbers is somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 to 20 times more prevalent than marijuana consumption, or you could look at that and say the illicit market or the, the black market of marijuana is enormous. And just as many people use cannabis as they, they use alcohol. And that is a, you know, hugely untapped um, market. And, and which is why I think, you know, certain people are looking at this and saying that this is a, you know, could be a very profitable area to invest. But that being said, Today, investing in cannabis isn't that easy. You know, in Washington State, for example, if you want to invest in a, in a cannabis company, and even if they're totally legitimate and, and you know, you, they've gone through all the regulations, you as an investor still have to get fingerprinted, background check, you know, and those types of things, you know, I think still feel a little bit um, uncomfortable for, for some investors. So I think that that's that that's going to continue to erode and and that I think that as capital markets start to be able to flow more freely, um, you're going to see more and more people investing in that space. And, and, you know, that's certainly something that, that we're monitoring, but the U S market is, is really, you know, it's a lot further behind than even say like Canada where, you know, their stocks can list more easily. And, and, and so I think that it's a trend that is only going to continue. <clears throat> What's your prediction, if you have one, on uh, if and when c- cannabis will get like full federal legal legalization? That's a really good question. I don't, you know, you think about let, let's let's use again alcohol as a proxy for cannabis. You know, I think that to think it's going to be federally legalized and it's going to be controlled at a federal level is unlikely. I mean, you know, if you I mean, we remember in Washington State that it wasn't that long ago that the only place to buy, you know, liquor or spirits was a liquor store, right? And yet in California, it was always available in grocery stores. And that's changed here in Washington State. Now you can buy your local grocer. Um, But, you know, you still go to a state like Utah 
or maybe a better example is when I would go to school in Boston and, and we'd not plan properly for a weekend and we wanted beer on, on Sundays, they wouldn't sell beer. So you'd have to drive across the state line to New Hampshire or something and, and buy your beer there. Literally, you drive across the state line, buy your beer and drive back and put it in your, your condo. And, you know, it wasn't a short drive. So so we, we learned our lesson pretty quickly. But to, to your point about to your to your point about <laughs> to the motivation there and the commitment. <laughs> but but to your point, I think it'll always be handled on a on a state by state basis, even if it is federally legalized. Um, so and that will that will change, you know, that will change some of the dynamics of, you know, states that are more um, some states will embrace it more. And, it, you know, it'll be a faster growing industry in those states and some states may never legalize it. So I think it will be very fragmented. I don't think you're the only college student in U.S. history that's gone through creative uh, means to find find beer. Right. So, um, <laughs> well, you know, we'll see. So, yeah. But good overview on cannabis, uh, something to follow, something that we are following. And and uh, here we go. So uh, as I as I teased earlier, I do want to talk about the covid post covid workplace changes that you envision happening i mean like i mentioned you know you spent the last several months over in hawaii and yet you know we still talked almost every single day just like as if we were in the office together it just so happened that i was in washington and you were in hawaii for the bulk of that time period so let's talk about that i mean obviously our experience is not unique that's happening all over the world right now but give us your thoughts on what's happening you know what are the implications of it what to monitor and all that yeah, I mean, this is a big question that a lot of people are talking about, especially people who, you know, are in um, commercial real estate. They're wondering about it. People that are, you know, work for, for the hospitality industry are asking these questions. You know, will will this idea, I mean, it wasn't that long ago that probably almost everybody can relate. You'd fly to a three-day conference on some topic, you know, that was specific to your industry and you know it'd be three days of of speakers and and the reality is you'd probably you know sit by the pool and do work on your laptop for all but four of the speakers that you really wanted to hear and you'd sit around for three days and you know i guess the question is was that all that productive you know and you fast forward to today where you know a meeting like that or a, you know a workshop or a seminar or whatever might be hosted digitally and you may only log in for the parts that, you know, you care about. You certainly wouldn't fly anywhere to do that. You do it all from, you know, either your office or your, your home office. And I do wonder, you know, will, you know, will there be a, is it a permanent shift? I mean, to a virtual, virtual only setting, probably not. But are people going to ask those questions of like, do I really want to get in a, you know, get on a plane and be away from my family for three days to hear four hours of relevant information and has COVID kind of been a wake up call and, and kind of a, you know, a refresh or a reset in terms of how people consider spending their time. I think certainly that's a yes. I think it's also super interesting in, t in terms of like sales. Um, you could think about it in terms of like a saleswoman or a salesman flying from, you know, their hometown to visit a customer, or you could view it as, you know, a firm like ours instead of having a, you know, going to meet a client at a restaurant, you know, or a prospective client, maybe um, at a restaurant, do you just hop on a Zoom with them? Um, and, you know, as, as it's, it's certainly become easier way to interact with people, I think, you know, for us, but I, what I wonder is, you know, 
is as people start to default to that, does the hungrier salesperson, maybe the more savvy salesperson say, yeah, everyone's going with, with kind of the virtual easy uh, meeting route, but I'm going to be the hungrier salesperson. I'm going to go, I'm going to fight for that in-person meeting. I'm going to fight, you know, to, to build more, you know, more rapport with that person. And does it reward people that don't default to a virtual relationship with their clients or customers? And I think the answer is, I think that at first everyone's going to default to that. And then I think that, that people still crave it at their core. They crave relationships, they crave human interaction. And I think that it'll eventually probably swing back pretty significantly the other way. I would make one last comment to you, which you brought up, which is kind of office. And, you know, I think every, every company is saying, Hey, you know, we had this much headcount before we went into this, you know, do we really need that much headcount? I bet you that almost everyone's saying, no, we don't, you know, we could shave amount of people in the offices by five, 10, 15, 20%. There is going to be some number, I think, of permanently, you know, adjusting down, which if you, you know, own commercial real estate, you know, and I think that's certainly a, a consideration. And, and also, I think, too, retail, you know, if, if you're someone that's going to start up, say, a, you know, a small clothing boutique and you want to sell clothes that whatever that people want to buy, do you really need to have a physical store anymore? Do you, you know, have people are people now more comfortable buying online? You know, why, why sign a retail lease if you can launch an app and a website that showcases your stuff? And especially in a consumer environment where we're becoming more and more accustomed to having a totally digital experience. I mean, I don't, I remember not very long ago thinking, God, I would never, you know, buy jeans without going and touching them or feeling them. And then COVID hits and it sort of resets how you're used to consuming things from, from maker, you know, from the maker of, of the good. And so I do think that that is, that there is a permanent shift in terms of the way that people will consume. And so I think that, you know, that does put a, it, it puts people that own real estate in a question of, you know, in a position to question what type of real estate do I want to own? Do I want to own commercial, you know, office building? Do I want to own multifamily? Do I want to own apartments? I mean, you could go through that whole thing. I mean, uh, apartments are like that. That's been put under pressure with, you know, not being able to evict people that don't pay rent. And, and, and there's a ton of ethical questions there. But all those areas from office to multi, you know, multi-tenant apartments to retail you know, I think that people will have to think really carefully about a post-COVID normalization, what that looks like. Yeah, no, I mean, I think the shopping experience is changing dramatically as you bring that up on the retail side. I mean, I, I live in the uh, city of Woodenville, Washington. We just happen to be kind of like the the like the Napa of of uh, the greater Seattle area without vineyards, actually, you know, kind of a farm community that, that now has a bunch of uh, wineries and tasting rooms. And I've always felt like, or at least in the last two or three years, you watch this Amazon effect on retail and just like how much even my wife or our friends now do all their shopping online. I mean, even groceries, right? Getting delivered to your house. It's just like the the idea that you have to go to stores uh, to get goods and, uh, anymore is a little bit laughable, right? And and like you're talking about on the clothing side, and yet we live in this uh, city that has this unique experience that people don't do online, right? They go wine tasting physically with their friends to physical locations. And so you have this hub, you know, this, this local industry 
at least where we, we live, that really then drives a lot of foot traffic out into the community uh, in a way that you you, you can't um, replace online. Uh, and so I've always, I mean, I've been talking about this for years, just like how special that is uh, for at least our, our city and our town to have uh, that pull um, and then just, you know, this experience that people can go and enjoy. I mean, many of the listeners and especially clients know my family owns uh, one of the wineries out there. So just like tying into to local uh, to local retail of restaurants, et cetera, um, I think that's a really kind of unique thing going for for at least the city of Woodenville. But it'll be it'll be curious to see like what happens retail uh, across the country, um, you know, that that can be innovative like that. Right. So I think it's a great point. But I think you said something that I thought was interesting is, I think that that more and more goods are being consumed uh, virtually or or purchased, um, you know, digitally. But the one thing that you can't really replicate is experiences. And that's what you were talking about, you know, going to a winery or going to a spa, you know, those types of things. Experience sporting event aren't concert. Yeah, those things are those things cannot be commoditized in the way that we consume them. And I think that, you know, that is a, it's certainly an inter, you know, if, if you told me that, that I could own, you know, a retail building that, that has a winery, you know, a winery in it, or I could have one that, that sells shoes, I'm taking the one that sells experiences all day long. Right. So I think that'll, it's going to reshape a lot of the landscape retail uh, moving forward. And that's why they're starting to build all these, right. Like the multi-use with people living right above the retail. So they're like physically right next to it. Um, anyways, last question. We got to wrap up. This is on inflation deflation, you know, obviously, uh, you know, CPI numbers uh, today, you know, we're hearing this all the time, not just, uh, not just today, but just it seems to be timely, but thoughts on inflation, uh, fears of inflation. I know mean, we've covered this a few times in the coffee with Evergreen the last month or two, but uh, thoughts on that as a theme, something that, you know, any new thoughts on that for, for maybe, you know, what we're seeing right now? Yeah, I mean, I think that inflation is a, you can't go anywhere without reading articles about it and, and people worrying about it. I, I can't remember the last time, certainly in my career, that inflation has been this much of a um, potential landmine in terms of, of the news coverage and, and people talking about it. But it, it's a little bit of a tricky um, a tricky beast to, to wrestle because Inflation isn't like water, right? We know that water freezes at 32 degrees. What we don't know is, and maybe say it the, an, another way, is we know that if we print enough money, at some point, the money becomes worthless, right? If you start just handing out hundreds of millions of dollars to every citizen, you know, if, if I handed every citizen in America a million dollars, right, that would obviously create inflation. We haven't handed them a million dollars, but we've handed them stimulus checks obviously a lot less than that, but a lot of people are are saying, well, at some point, and we don't know when, it's like, you know, going off a cliff, you're running, you're running, you're running, everything's fine. And then all of a sudden it's not fine. And I think that there's a lot of people that are, that are trying to get their arms around how much money can we print to help our economy and, you know, and to help manage through the pandemic. But then you have other people saying, hey, 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 you know, this is, you know, it reminds me of the old the old joke. You know, you ask the guy who jumps off of, you know, a 40 story building, how's it going 20 stories down? And he says, so far, so good. Right. He hasn't hit (laughs) he hasn't hit the ground. And so I think that, you know, the inflation, I think that there's a lot of there's some false sense of comfort of, hey, look how much money we printed so far and nothing bad has happened. Well, that argument lasts right up until it doesn't last. 
So I think that there, it's certainly something that, that you should be worried about. And, you know, we were talking about the, the traveling salesperson. And so I'll give you kind of some, uh, you know, I'll give you the flip side argument. Yes, we're printing a lot of money. Yes, it's risky. You cannot do it forever. All those things are true. The flip side is you have deflationary forces at work. And so well, let me give an example. I'm not that smart, so I like to think in really basic concepts. So the basic concept that I'd give is we're talking about the traveling salesperson who used to fly, say, from Chicago to Dallas, and he would go or she would go, and they would woo their customers. So before they would go, they might buy a suit, right? They might, you know, new suit to look good in front of their customer since they're going to be five feet away from her, three feet away from her, right? They would buy a plane ticket. They would fly to a new city, and they would, you know, rent a hotel room. They would get to the hotel room and then they would go meet their client and they would take them golfing maybe. And then they would take, you know, them out to dinner. Well, in today's new sales world, every kind of touch point that we just discussed where somebody would be spending money, now they never leave their house. And, you know, and the odds are they're probably sitting at their computer wearing a sport coat and tie and sitting in their underwear underneath, right? And so (laughs) you have... You, you Sweatpants, maybe, I mean, maybe jeans. Yeah, ho- hopefully <laughs> something. But but the point is, just think right. about how many of those, you know, what were, in, you know, injections of money into the economy, you just deleted by changing the way that the yeah, sales behavior. happens and you know right. the behavior and 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 you could do that. You could do that example across so many different industries. But really, what you what you said in the simplest way, or what I said in the simplest way, is that. Technology, while you know it's great, it also has a deflationary force on the world, and it, and it pushes prices down. In some ways, we don't have to spend as much money as we once did. You know, pick pick a. I'll be even more simplistic. Pick another one. You know, what are people doing less in the last? You know, since we've all been working from home, we're probably driving less. What does that do? You know, think about all those ramifications of not driving. You don't go to the mechanic as much. I mean, it's just so. There's a lot of a lot of ways that you know, a lot of things that are happening that are deflationary. There's a lot of things that are happening that's inflationary. And, and I, I, you know, I always say this, we don't get paid to predict what markets do. We get paid to react to what they do. And I think that right now, um, while everyone's debating it, it's sort of, it's definitely something to be mindful of and, and, and be preparing, you know, should things go one way, should they go the other and thinking about those things, but making a bet either way at this point seems um, not prudent. I'm going to be fascinated for two different industries to see how technology disrupts uh, in medicine, right? Like the idea that you have to go physically to a doctor. I mean, I guess in most cases, but, you know, like a lot of these doctor visits could be more virtual. And I know that there's industries uh, growing in that space. But, I mean, are you even talking to a local doctor at that point? What's the cost involved in that? And then second, uh, real estate, right, with – with uh, technology like Zillow and Redfin, I mean, everything just online and your shopping experience and the, and the photography now, you know, like, you know, what happens and, and the representation needed in, you know, in that. Like, I just think that over the next five to 10 years is going to be very interesting to monitor. There, I think it's a great point. I mean, I'll, I'll just, since you brought up telemedicine, I'll run with that for a second and just give you some, just some nuggets to think about that didn't make it fascinating is, yeah, you know, if your kid cut his finger, you drive to the ER and wouldn't it be nice to be able, you know, and now maybe it's possible that you, you show the cut on your you know, computer screen. The doctor takes a look and says, no, 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 you don't need stitches. Don't waste your time and money going to the emergency room. 
that person will be fine. So yeah, I think that, that that's one error. And I think that another error that's fascinating too is like, can you imagine a world where, you know, people feel like they're not getting very good health care, it's expensive, it's cumbersome, and, you know, say that there's a lot of really good doctors in India and they say, hey, look, you know, I don't know what licensed care is in the United States. I'm not a, I'm not a licensed doctor in the United States, but I can certainly sit on a computer and look at, you know, your skin and say that looks like psoriasis, or I can look at your finger and say that that's a wart and here's how you treat it. Or, or there's a lot of different medical practices. And I think it's going to create ethical questions like you're telling me that I can't get, you know, medical advice from this person in India because they're not licensed through your, you know, your medical system. But who, can you really stop people from turning to those online resources if they want to replace medical care with something that's regulated to something that's less. I mean, huge. Yeah, no, I mean, that's exactly what I was just thinking about. That's exactly what I was just trying to highlight and, and bring up as something that will be fascinating to monitor over the next five, ten years. Cause all of those, I mean, all that stuff is in play when it comes to that. And yet, you know, without the technology of it, we wouldn't even be talking, right? We, without the ability to see somebody or be able, you know, have video sharing from across the country or across the world, even, uh, you wouldn't even be possible. So, I, I mean, we could sit here and probably come up with a hundred other examples of like, hey, watch out, you know, like watch where this is headed. Um, but it, it will be fast. And then, and then uh, to your point, I mean, those are all deflationary drivers, uh, you know, in, in in the system. So. Never a dull moment, right, yeah. in markets. And anyways, so I appreciate your time today. I think with that, we'll wrap up. We'll get you back on again, I'm sure, at some point. But uh, thanks for doing this with us, and and uh, welcome back to Washington. Thanks. Happy to be back in the office, bud. Evergreen Gobcal is a wealth management firm with offices in Bellevue, Washington, Portland, Oregon, and California's Bay Area. We provide investment management, tax compliance, family office, and retirement planning services. Evergreen is accepting applications for new clients who align with our firm's investment and planning approach. If you think you might be a fit with us, follow the link in the show notes to fill out our prospective client compatibility survey.